It's a condition that negatively impacts a person's ability to speak. They know what they want to say, but they can't find the sounds or figure out how to move their mouth correctly to say the idea that they are looking for. The word sounds perfect inside their head, and then when they try to say it aloud, it comes wrong. It's called aphasia. It is estimated that there are around 180,000 people who acquire aphasia each year in the United States. But innovative research is happening right here in our community to treat it. We hope to be one of the leading aphasia centers helping people across the country, if not across the globe. We're giving a voice to aphasia inside this edition of CTSI Discovery Radio. Welcome to CTSI Discovery Radio. I'm your host, Brian Belmer. CTSI Discovery Radio is brought to you by the Clinical and Translational Science Institute of Southeast Wisconsin. The CTSI is a consortium of researchers, doctors, scientists, and others representing eight institutions, including the Medical College of Wisconsin, Milwaukee School of Engineering, Marquette University, the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee, Children's Wisconsin, Freighert Hospital, Versity Blood Center of Wisconsin, and the Zablocki VA Medical Center. The CTSI works collaboratively across all of our member institutions. Our mission is advancing health through research and discovery. Imagine knowing what you want to say, but being physically unable to say the words. That's what people with aphasia are challenged with. Today, we learn about this often devastating disorder from a couple of experts, beginning with Dr. Sarah Pillay, Assistant Professor, Department of Neurology, Division of Neuropsychology at the Medical College of Wisconsin who first shares that aphasia is a really common language disorder that occurs after there is damage to the language network in the brain. And she tells us aphasia's most common causes. The most common cause is stroke on the left side of the brain, but it can happen from other medical conditions, traumatic brain injury, or tumors are pretty common secondary causes of aphasia after stroke. Is aphasia a common disorder? Unfortunately, it is. It is estimated that there are around 180,000 people who acquire aphasia each year in the United States. And additional data suggests that there are around 2 to 4 million people in the United States that are living with aphasia at any given time. To put that into perspective, aphasia affects more than twice as many people as Parkinson's disease and 150 times more than people that have ALS. And both of those are more familiar in the public eye and more familiar terms. Why is aphasia lesser known when it's more common? We've thought about that and it may relate to different reasons. Aphasia affects a person's ability to communicate. So the very people who are the disorder's best advocates have difficulty discussing it with others. And that can be a major barrier to increasing awareness. Also, consider that there's stigma that accompanies having a conversation when people with aphasia try to talk to others. Because people with aphasia often have a very real sense of what they want to say, but they just have a difficult time saying it or finding the correct words. 
Actor Bruce Willis was recently diagnosed with aphasia. Dr. Pillay says this has impacted public awareness of the disorder. The National Aphasia Awareness Association does a national survey every few years to gauge public perception and knowledge about the disorder. In one of their first surveys in 2016, they reported of the people surveyed, close to 85% had never even heard of the term aphasia, and only 9% of that sample could identify it as a language disorder. Fast forward to 2022. Shortly after Bruce Willis announced his diagnosis, they repeated that survey, and they found that close to 68% of the people surveyed had actually heard of the term. And what was even better is that 40% of the people surveyed had heard the term, and they could properly identify it as a language disorder. So just having celebrities like that come out in the media and share that has been really, really helpful to increasing awareness. Aphasia most commonly results following a stroke. What are other demographics of patients? There's some estimates that around 15% of individuals who are under the age of 65 years old experience aphasia after their first stroke. And that percentage increases to about 43% for people that are 85 years or older. What about gender? In the U.S., that lifetime risk of stroke is higher in women than in men. There's some evidence that women have slightly higher rates of aphasia due to strokes than men. However, that impact of gender on post-stroke aphasia is pretty small. Across studies, you're looking at about a 3% difference for men versus women. What's happening physiologically to someone suffering from aphasia? just damage to regions of the brain that support language functioning and that we can see on brain MRI or CT. For most people language is located on the left side of the brain and in the frontal lobes. The area of the brain that is involved in speaking aloud is very close to the part of the brain that helps control movement on the right side of the body. So sometimes we can see people with aphasia have physical disabilities like smiling or using their hand or even walking. Meanwhile, other people, they can have aphasia and have no physical disability. And for that reason, aphasia is sometimes referred to as a hidden disability because people cannot see that you have any difficulty navigating the world by just looking at you. As far as how significantly aphasia impacts a person's ability to verbally communicate, aphasia affects everyone differently. Many people with aphasia are able to carry on conversations and they really like speaking with other people. That conversation pace may be slower and you may need to repeat some questions. Some people have a harder time speaking aloud, so they also use supportive devices, writing or use pictures to assist with speaking. And in addition to affecting verbal communication, some people have difficulty understanding what they read or they hear. Writing can also be affected. And it's also important to know it's almost never an all or none phenomenon. And there's a lot of variability in how much any one language process is affected. But while it's important to understand how aphasia can impact a person, the key is... It's really important to keep aphasia and intelligence separate. Aphasia affects our ability to communicate. People with aphasia still retain that knowledge that they have acquired over their lifetime. And that is one of the most frustrating things about aphasia. They know what they want to say, but they can't find the sounds or figure out how to move their mouth correctly to say the idea that they are looking for. The word sounds perfect inside their head, and then when they try to say it aloud, it comes wrong. Aphasia can also interrupt a person's everyday life. Not everyone with aphasia is able to work. 
Since most jobs require speech and language skills, aphasia can make some types of work difficult. However, you know, even individuals with mild or moderate aphasia are sometimes able to work, but they may have to change their job. Even performing simple tasks at home. Think about everything that we need language for. Following a recipe or reading instructions on medications. All of those things require language to some degree, and so it can have a big impact. Aphasia can also lead to feelings of isolation. Aphasia can be a very isolating disorder. The person still has all those thoughts and ideas, but they have a fragmented communication system to try and express them and connect with others. So it can be very lonely. And depression. Difficulty adjusting to life can be very challenging. Now who are you? And imagine how your relationship will change with your children, with your spouse, with your friends. Those are tough for anyone and even harder for someone with aphasia who's struggling because of reliance on your support network to help you navigate a society that relies on our ability to read and write and speak easily. Then, is aphasia treatable? Immediately after the brain injury or stroke, there is a normal period of what we call spontaneous recovery. Some people may recover a lot during this period. Other people may need additional speech therapy. With the possibility of some recovery. Current treatments for aphasia are a little variable and provide modest benefits, and that can lead people with residual impairments. But it's important to really highlight that people can continue to make functional gains even years after their stroke, but that recovery is slow. So how can we support someone with aphasia? Be patient. Try to listen actively. Try not to finish a person's thought if they seem to be searching for a word. Sometimes that can actually take them off track of what they were looking for. Speak slower, not louder. Most of these patients do not have difficulty hearing. Just the pace needs to slow down so the brain can process it. And finally, simply... Smile. Smile a lot for support and don't be afraid to ask them if they need help because there are many different ways that you can support language. Understanding what it is, let's look at research being done to advance treatments and outcomes for patients with aphasia. For this, Dr. Sarah Pillay is joined by Dr. Jeffrey Binder, who, among his many titles, is Vice Chair for Research and Professor, Department of Neurology, and Director of the Language Imaging Laboratory at the Medical College of Wisconsin. Dr. Binder says when it comes to commitment to aphasia research... The commitment on MCW's part is very strong. MCW's been focusing increasingly on accelerating neuroscience research and growing the research program in neuroscience, and aphasia fits in that general category. We have funding from internal resources like the AHW, the Neuroscience Research Center, the CTSI, so I think the commitment is very strong. Dr. Sarah Pillay. I think right now is a really exciting time for aphasia research at the Medical College of Wisconsin. Our group has some excellent researchers that are investigating not just aphasia, but also language for people who have not had strokes. That information is so critical to helping really understand the nuances of language organization in the brain, how that gets disrupted, and how that recovers. What exactly is the mission of aphasia research at MCW? Our mission is to expand the options for aphasia treatment. 
which are currently limited. And so we're working on expanding those options, first optimizing and validating currently proposed cutting-edge therapies that have been explored but haven't yet entered the standard of care, and also by developing completely novel treatment approaches. The mission of aphasia research is similar to the broader mission of MCW. We are a leader and innovator in the field of language research, and we discover and translate new knowledge from what we learn in basic science research to cutting-edge collaborative patient care to improve the health of the communities we serve. In short, our mission is to enhance quality of life and communication in people with aphasia through evidence-based therapy and state-of-the-art research. And MCW has provided critical support to aphasia research efforts. By providing grant funding through the Advancing a Healthier Wisconsin Mechanism, the Research Affairs Committees, the Cognitive Neuroscience Research Program, and the Stroke Rehabilitation Center. That funding has really helped get the current projects off the ground and allowed us to be competitive for NIH-level funding. The team working on aphasia research is large and highly collaborative. Our team is amazing. It's experts in key areas composed of people from a variety of clinical and research backgrounds. So collaboration is critical because it's an extremely complex problem to understand and it requires scientific expertise in multiple areas like neuroanatomy and psychology and brain imaging and then integrating all of that scientific expertise with clinical expertise. I think we have a remarkable and pretty unique team here. This work takes a team of experts here at MCW, as well as our partners in the community and from our participants who give us really important feedback on what is meaningful to them. Within the Language Imaging Laboratory, we have assembled a team across many disciplines, including cognitive psychology, electrical engineering, neuroscience, neurology, neuropsychology, speech and language pathology, statistics, psychometrics, linguistics, and computer science. And all of this research, from basic science to translational applications and clinical interventions, is really important. Next, we asked them to tell us about some of the innovative aphasia research happening at MCW. First, we learn about transcranial electrical stimulation, or TES. Transcranial electrical stimulation is a non-invasive brain stimulation technique that passes an electrical current through the cortex of the brain to alter brain function. The electrical current is applied to an individual scalp using two or more electrodes and a portion of the current penetrates the scalp and is conducted through the brain where it alters neuronal excitability. We can then observe the resulting behavioral changes and establish a causal link between the two. This is a non-invasive, completely safe, painless method of stimulating the brain with electrical currents. They're delivered by wires that are connected to a very low voltage electrical source, kind of like a double A battery or something on that order. The purpose of TES is to really understand why and how this type of stimulation enhances recovery. The general idea is that TES lowers the resting membrane potential of neurons. It makes it easier for them to fire. And when you pair this with a speech therapy exercise, it makes it easier for the brain to learn, which may translate to better recovery. The idea is that the current, as it runs through the brain, alters the way that the neurons communicate with each other. 
other. It makes them talk to each other more than they otherwise would. And so they learn faster by communicating with each other at a higher rate. So while the patients are doing exercises, the theory is that that will make the learning process go faster and more efficiently. But there are still questions to be answered. Like where we should stimulate, what frequency, how long, what we should pair with it. And we also want to know how the brain changes after TES and who does it change. These are the types of questions that we're trying to address now with our research. Then we discover the development of a brain-computer interface, or BCI, device which Dr. Binder says is beyond cutting edge research. This is next generation research. Brain computer interface. The idea is to read signals from the brain tissue and have a computer do something with those signals. Wait, a device that can essentially read a person's thoughts? Yep. The problem in aphasia is that a large part of the brain has been damaged. The part that remembers what the words are or the names are for concepts. So most people with aphasia have normal ability to retrieve concepts. But in the most severe cases, those thoughts can't be retrieved because the part of the language network that's been damaged stores those word sounds. However... A brain-computer interface, or BCI device, would take electrical signals from the brain areas retrieving the concepts that the person wants to express and feed those signals into a neural network on a computer, take those electrical signals and decode them to identify the concept that was in the person's mind at the time that the neural activity occurred. The computer can then select the word that names that concept. The computer can then produce the word. It would essentially be speaking the thoughts of the patient on behalf of the patient. It may sound like science fiction, but it's on its way to becoming science fact. I think we're the first group to propose the type of brain-computer interface that we're working on at the moment. And this is an interface that would essentially classify or read what is in the mind of the person. So that's our idea. Kind of radical. May or may not work, but we think that it's worth a try because there's really nothing else to offer these people with very severe aphasia. Very futuristic. But is it realistic? We think it's feasible. We're hopeful that by getting these signals directly from the brain surface, the device itself would be implanted inside the skull and essentially wearable. Uh, we recently got a grant from the NIH to explore it. But I do think that it's at least a decade away because of the many technical issues to overcome. Then there's research looking at enhancing precision diagnoses among individual aphasia patients. Our approach is based on precision diagnoses of aphasia deficit patterns. And we obtain a very detailed profile of an individual's language abilities, and that allows us to better understand where the breakdown is happening and then choose an evidence-based therapy that specifically targets that weakness or works to strengthen the residual language network. You can almost say that no two people with aphasia have exactly the same problems and that's because the language network is quite complex and we need better tests to not
not only tell whether a person has a particular kind of deficit, but also how severe that deficit is and how it interacts with other deficits that they might have. Disruption at any one of those steps can cause an impairment, and our group tries to figure out at what exact step that disruption is happening. So that's the purpose of the precision diagnoses. We have long been in the process of developing a carefully designed battery of language tests we're giving to a large sample of people with strokes to know the areas of brain damage that are responsible for different kinds of deficits so that in the future and already to some extent, we will be able to pinpoint processes interrupted at a very specific level. And there's a new initiative called IPAT. IPAT stands for the Intensive Program for Aphasia Therapy. It is a comprehensive language therapy program that's led by a multidisciplinary team. And our mission is to offer this cutting-edge, evidence-based treatment for aphasia in a daily intensive format that is generally not available elsewhere. The program is tailored to individual needs. Everybody gets a detailed language assessment, and each person gets about 40 hours of individual and group therapy. IPAT is an intensive program analogous to learning a foreign language through immersion, working one-on-one and also in groups on language exercises. Participants get a lot out of communicating and interacting with other people with aphasia. It's new to MCW, and it's been extremely successful so far. And the other thing that's really cool about this clinical program is that they also have this opportunity to participate in different research studies that we have going on at any one particular time. We try to couple research programs that we have going with the therapy programs in IPET, and we try to integrate the two so that we're offering cutting-edge, evidence-based therapy for aphasia. The success of IPAT and aphasia research at MCW is due in no small part to a grant from the We Energies Foundation, which was instrumental in kicking off a lot of our projects, provided critical funding for personnel involved in setting up the IPAT program, and it's also allowed us to keep the costs down for participants in that program. So it was the first major gift that we received and really kicked off the whole project. When it comes to the future of aphasia research at MCW, Dr. Binder thinks big. And why not? Well, we have large ambitions. We hope to be one of the leading aphasia centers helping people across the country, if not across the globe. And Dr. Pillay agrees with him. The future looks bright. What are the best resources to learn more about aphasia? Probably the best single resource is the National Aphasia Association. We have lots of resources about aphasia on the Freighter website as well as on our MCW neurology website. The Language Imaging Laboratory here at MCW is a resource to learn more about research projects that we're doing. We have a community support group born out of IPAP that meets quarterly. And we just started a brand new podcast called Aphasia Speaks to really provide a well-rounded look at different aspects of aphasia. Which is available on Spotify, and I urge people to give that a listen. And Dr. Pillay urges anyone dealing with aphasia. Don't give up. Be patient with yourself or with the loved one that has aphasia. I am constantly amazed by our patients and our participants' commitment to their own recovery, which really affirms our own commitment to research. So keep going. That's my message. 
Living with aphasia is a difficult situation, but not a hopeless one. We've dedicated our careers to alleviating the problem, and there is great hope that further advances will occur. Now let's hear from someone who's truly giving a voice to aphasia. Her name is Lori, and along with assistance from her daughter, Nicole, she shares what it's like living with aphasia. Lori first shared these insights with Dr. Sarah Pillay, and today they've agreed to share Lori's story with us. Lori worked hard to regain her speech following a stroke. She reads her replies to interview questions with help from her daughter, Nicole, and begins by telling us a bit about herself. I have, I have three children's Cole, Kevin, and Emma. I like to ski with me, Mark, Man, Land, and Kent family. And they, I, I have six kids, grandkids. grandkids. When did Lori have the stroke leading to her aphasia? Three years. Four. Four. Zero. Four. Four years. Years. Go. Go. While she's made incredible progress since her stroke, Lori says her recovery has been hard because I can't communicate with. Well, how hard because it can't leave arm and the leg. leg. Wow. Well, once speech speech is the spare hardest. Aphasia affects her ability to communicate with us, not her ability to understand us. But even with that understanding, her aphasia has impacted her work and personal relationships. It's affected, affected with work. She can't commute the communicate. You can't talk normal. Call me. me. Yeah. They can't. You can't make calls anymore. Call. Yeah, they can't work. make it there. And your friendship. Friendship. It's they a have a hard time. Is understand. understand me. Me. Lori's daughter, Nicole, experiences her mother's challenges communicating firsthand. When my mom communicates, it makes people uncomfortable. Not that people don't want to hang out with her or go to lunch with her. Some people have a hard time being in her presence, maybe, because they're uncomfortable and don't know how to communicate with her. Extending to family as well. It's hard even for us family because sometimes we don't understand everything she is saying and we're with her all the time so I can only imagine other people or strangers it's challenging 
Unfortunately, feelings of loneliness and isolation are also real challenges. When before stroke, you are literally nonstop, which is exactly how my mom was. Aphasia limits so much. In this new life, dealing with aphasia has been challenging. On most days, she's at home practicing every day, but she's home alone a lot of times. But fortunately, Lori participated in MCW's IPAT program with great success. This program that we've done here has been so helpful for my mom because it was the first time in four years that she's ever been with other people with aphasia. And I could definitely see so many positives come from that experience. And that was huge for you. Yeah. And for anyone with aphasia working to regain their voice, Lori says... Keep trying. They try. Keep trying. Trying. It's his slow, glow process. Process. But but I'm I'm still, still improving. Improving. You're doing great, Laurie. Really great. And that brings us to the end for this edition of CTSI Discovery Radio. As always, thanks to all of our guests for appearing on today's show. Dr. Sarah Pillay, Dr. Jeffrey Binder, and special thanks to Lori and her daughter, Nicole. I hope you've discovered something by listening to today's show, and I'm doubly hopeful that you'll join us again next time. CTSI Discovery Radio airs the third Friday of every month. Make an appointment on your calendar and join us for each episode. On behalf of the Clinical and Translational Science Institute of Southeast Wisconsin and all of our affiliate partners and members, I'm Brian Belmer, wishing you happier, healthier days ahead. For more information about research or to listen to the podcast of this or any of our shows on demand, please visit our website at ctsi.mcw.edu. CTSI Discovery Radio is written, produced, and hosted by Brian Belmer in collaboration with WMSE Radio. The CTSI and this program are under the direction of Dr. Reza Shakir.